0: All right, good morning. (laughs) Welcome to Denton North Church. Glad you're all here with us today. Um, We kind of last minute decided to move to Zoom to the end of the year. Kind of the main reason is because even though it's technically okay for churches to meet in public, um, the, the county and city just uh, decided that they would like to ban gatherings of more than 10 outside, and so we kind of want to respect that. Honestly, it goes a lot with the topic that we're talking about today, uh, of not exploiting our rights, um, but actually um, kind of living up to uh, what God intends for us, rather than living down to this is my right, this is the law, I can do you know what I want. Uh, so anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to meet, uh, even though it is a pretty beautiful day out there, a little chilly. Uh, but we'll meet uh, today. Leslie will finish up our sermon series um, next week. And then on the 20th, we're going to do kind of an Advent service, but part of that service will be um, at determining what we'll talk about next semester. So the main topic that Leslie and I've come up with is the consistency of scripture from the Old to New Testament. We want to spend time talking next semester about That. And so we've given six topics, um, including God versus Jesus, um, the sort of Israel and Christians, Old Testament law versus the ethics of Christianity, violence, slavery, and women. Uh, And I've already forgotten the other two, um, even though I just did this last night. But anyway, we gave you a survey on Facebook, and we'll send that out in the newsletter as well, uh, and maybe even in this chat, so that you can give us an idea of what top. Three topics you like because we can't do all six of the topics. Um, So do that before the 20th and then on the 20th we'll do what we did last semester which is come up with ideas. We'll break you up into one of those three groups by your choice uh, that we choose and then we'll come up with some subtopics which I think were really helpful for this semester. So again in doing that survey, don't just pick stuff that sounds interesting to you, like I know the violent slavery and women one, like we're all super excited about that. Um, and that's great. We'll talk about that. Uh, but really be thinking about what our church needs to hear. Uh, and so if that's something you feel like, you know, our church needs to hear and address, let's do it. Uh, but if it's just something that's interesting to you, uh, let's try to rank the, those topics based on what you feel like the church really needs to hear. Okay, so six topics on the form. Uh, take that survey, and, uh, and then we'll be prepped for the 20th where we'll talk about that and also do our Advent um, deal. Okay, sounds good. Any other announcements that I'm missing before we hop on in? Okay, so Grant is going to lead us now uh, in our um, our worship for today. And so we're going to do what we've been doing, where we use what we've posted on Facebook and in the newsletter uh, to allow you to think about it ahead of time. And so he's going to lead us on that, and then uh, we will. Uh, We'll come back together and uh, I'll give us a few thoughts.
1: Hey, so kind of same thing. I'm gonna share my screen and all that business. Um, So there's a lot here and we're not gonna get to all of it, Um, but hopefully many of you have been able to uh, listen to the the song or read the poem or that kind of stuff. So during the time where we're all together and I'm leading us, um, I'll show this image here. You can ponder that while I'm reading this part that says the pattern. And then um, we'll break into breakout groups and uh, I'll send the link to this so that everyone has it and uh, we'll answer our usual questions. And if you were able to look at it, you can share what stood out to you. And then um, we'll close the groups will close with a prayer and you can conclude your prayer with this one here that they provided. Um, So, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I'll start us off by reading the pattern. There is a shape to the Christian life, a pattern, and it's not the pattern one hopes to see when investing in the stock market, a long, steady upward trajectory toward the glory of an early retirement. Rather, it is a downward movement, a movement into darkness, a movement into sin, darkness, and humility, of facing the sin in ourselves and in others. Philippians 2 captures this pattern in a way that cements cements it in the mind of the church, the twofold condescension of our Lord as he lowered himself to become a man And then over the course of his life, lowered himself once more to freely embrace the humblest and most shameful of deaths. But accompanying this downward trajectory is a great reversal, a great glorification. For Jesus was raised in glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And all those united in him are children of the Father. The pattern of the Christian life is a voluntary humiliation in Christ, a death to self in him, and a corresponding exaltation and glorification in him. But this pattern isn't merely spiritual. It isn't merely personal or individualistic. The pattern is social, political, and ultimately cosmic. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places a plain. For those who welcome the Messiah, the the pattern is that of Philippians 2. For those who do not welcome the Messiah, the pattern is somewhat different, that of a forced humiliation, of the high places being made low, There is no room for pride and self-exaltation in the kingdom of God. The first chapters of Luke resound with the political implications of Jesus' birth, and they do not bode well for the powers and authorities. Kelly Cruz's painting, that is this one over here, uh, her paintings capture this movement precisely. An entry into darkness, a downward movement into yet more darkness, but a resurrection, a leap up into glory, in which every good thing is made better, every name restored, but darkness is left behind. And this is the pattern of the Christian life, the pattern established by our Savior, freely embraced by those who love him, who are united to him, in whom they and all things are made new. And what are the powers, the principalities, those who pervert this pattern? Those breaking apart the pattern, seeking glory alone and on their own terms through the humiliation of others. For them, there is only humiliation, the tearing down of the heights, the breaking apart of the crooked, and a final attempt to invite them to take part in the pattern. To take part in those first steps of embracing the humility, which is the foundation of any gift, any exaltation from above. So now if um, whoever is doing our Zoom administration can break us into the small groups of, I think maybe about five users, maybe about 10 minutes, if that sounds good to Brad, (laughs) Um, and I'll put our prompt in the chat and you can use that to uh, facilitate your time in the small groups.
0: All right, well, let's uh, continue on with our series. Um, You know, it's the second to the last one, so we're almost done here. Uh, This has been really refreshing to have topics sort of planned out for us by you guys. Um, And maybe that's the reason that in our thinking about topics we have a tough time coming up with them because the Spirit is saying you need to listen more to the people. (laughs) In your body, and so again, I just remind you of that challenge to go and get on that uh, that survey and do that and think through uh, what what we might talk about this next semester with the consistency of Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament. So many of you are probably familiar with Milgram and some of his crazy obedience studies. Yes, maybe, no, maybe. The idea is basically that you had some people in a room and you told someone to shock someone for giving a wrong answer. The person on the other end would pretend to scream as the voltage was increased. And you know, of course in 1961, basically the, uh, the issue that came out of this study was that it was amazing how many people would just obey authority sort of blindly. All right. And so a lot of other studies have uh, kind of imitated, copied even though that was in the age of unethical studies. So <laughs> uh, I've had to kind of think a little bit more about that. That's kind of what we wanna talk about today a little bit. And the topic is the Beatitudes versus the Bill of Rights. Uh, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time um, trying to talk either about the Beatitudes or the Bill of Rights, because <laughs> I want to hit at a high level, like we've been doing the last couple of weeks, to give you some uh, ample uh, ammunition to go back and uh, actually think through some of this on your own. All right. But if you think about the Bill of Rights, uh, sort of an addendum to the amendment to the Constitution and the Declaration, which sort of further enshrined certain basic human freedoms that people ought to have. We actually don't talk about very many of them. Most of them have to do with um, a fair trial. But we do talk quite a bit about the first one um, and the second one here in Texas, (laughs) which I'll get to a little bit later, actually, uh, I promise. But if you think about the Bill of Rights, really any law system, no matter how good it is, it's about minimums. Okay, it's, it's the law of the Old Testament all over again. All right? the only thing the law ultimately does, the scripture tells us, is it convicts us of sin because we simply can't keep most of it, all right? Or in the case of the Milgram studies, uh, the rest we just follow blindly so as not to have to think about the world around us. And what's really clear, particularly from the Milgram studies, is we never apply it equally to everyone. <laughs> Doesn't really take much of looking just back at the Declaration of Independence, that when it comes to applying laws, we love to get away with that, uh, you know, with things, but don't like to let others get away with things in general. And so the law in the scripture is really sort of seen as sort of the baseline uh, for any society, civilization, but the law of Christ is supposed to be the thing that really runs our lives, really is at the core of who we are. Again, laws are a list of no's. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But we live according to the gospel, which is a spirit of saying yes to God, no matter what it costs. James talks about this. We'll get to this in just a moment. uh, About anybody who knows the good he doesn't do or knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The gospel is an affirmative lifestyle. We're affirming the things that we ought to do as God calls us to do, not living down to a set of laws. Not again, that the laws or the Bill of Rights or any of those things aren't important. They're very important and they have to function in a society that isn't in any kind of agreement for the most part on what yeses they ought to be doing. It's a part of our fallen um, kind of nature capacity as humans. So we live according to the gospel, which is us saying yes to God, no matter what it costs. So no's allow us to compare ourselves to people. Okay, a lot, what we haven't done. I mean, there's literally lists on social media, put your number of what things you haven't done. (laughs) But yes, is much more like knowledge. It's, there's always so much more to do, All right? And so living and deciding I'm good based on a series of no's often allow me to sort of, you know, hone in on those no's that I really think are important. And according to my list, I'm really pretty good, okay? Again, we've, we've, we've talked about this at length at the very beginning of our sermon series, talking about Jesus and who he was. At. But know's allow us to do a lot of comparison. In, in research, this is called the BTA effect, the better than average effect. <laughs> I'm generally better than average at other, uh, uh, than other people at this thing. So we all have a tendency to be better than average when it comes to the law, all right? And how we define ourselves as good. But again in Christ, it's about yes, saying yes to God, no matter what it costs. And this is really what should tie Christians together, despite their government or law systems. They're saying yes to God, not they're saying no to culture or yes to cultural Christianity. And this is what's so important about the kingdom of God, the remnant of God in um grad school uh, I did a lot of survey research, some of which was published, uh, some of which wasn't never published in like academic journals, only just like in trade journals and things. but one of the biggest studies I underwent and still haven't done anything with because it's so complicated was to try to figure out how to you know um tease out people who were truly following Christ and people who weren't. <laughs> And particularly people across different uh, nationalities, uh, you know, social class, cultural barriers, whatever. And to try to prove the point that people who really followed their faith in Christ were going to be much more similar to each other, despite their social class, despite their nationality, than people who were just cultural Christians. And I still haven't been able to prove that, (laughs) but I have a sense of it, you know, sort of experientially in my own life. But a Christian who's really following Christ, living in an Arab country, which is rare, or living in Europe or living somewhere else, they're going to be a lot more similar to each other than someone who's just a, a Christian in America culturally and who's a, another Christian who's really following Christ in America. That what matters is their faith, not their nationality. And some of us, that's kind of a duh thing. Uh, but uh, I think it's very important, particularly as Christianity has become more and more aligned with the political positions in our society, that we remember uh, that we uh, our, our spiritual nationality is in the kingdom. So I want to just say two things as I introdu- uh, introduce that kind of general idea. One is actually a Bill of Rights, and one I think is a little bit more of like an assumed Bill of Rights, like we wish it was in there. All right. And I want to use the Philippians passage even before I knew that we were doing that with the worship thing. That's kind of the one I pinpointed. And if you think through Philippians 2, uh, it's been translated in a couple different ways. But basically, uh, Paul is saying that Jesus didn't exploit, okay, or grab a hold of or take advantage of his status as God to get what he wanted, he was willing to put that aside. And become human, and become even lower than human in the shameful death he died. Exactly what we read in the uh, the worship prompt this week. That he didn't take those what were rights for him and need to grasp onto them, or hold to them, or make a stand on them, or exploit them, or however you want to think about that. And so I want to take that same idea and apply it to first, and probably the most difficult for us, uh, our, our right of free speech. So we don't, as Christians, exploit or need to grasp our right to freedom of speech. Okay. In fact, it's a little bit like the point of submission in scripture. If you're having to tell someone to submit, you've probably lost the battle in the first place. Having telling someone you have freedom of speech, (laughs) you might have lost the battle in the first place. So we don't exploit our right to freedom of speech. We allow for the scripture, for other voices to be heard before ours, That is the scriptural uh, ethic for when it comes to talking uh, to other people, particularly who disagree with us. Now, that sometimes means including shutting up loud people when necessary so other voices can be heard, but we'll get to that in just a moment. We allow other people's voices to be heard. I want to read James 1, 19, and you can follow along with me if you want. So James 119, I'm going to skip around just a tiny bit to keep us on point. So 119 says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I am none of those things. And so every time I read this passage, I get immediately convicted. Um... And yeah, it's, I don't, I actually kid about this one, but this one's very close to home for me. Um, I don't feel like I've done a whole lot of growing in this in the last few years, and so I'll just confess that to you. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Those who consider themselves religious And it's interesting too, that in the Bill of Rights here, we have both a freedom of, you know, to practice your religion and the freedom of speech, um, things that are kind of intertwined, but just catch how James defines uh, religion that God sees as pure and faultless here. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. He's also gonna say people who do not merely listen to the word, or, or that listen to the word, but then don't do it, also deceives themselves. So people who do not keep a tight rein on their tongue are compared here to people who listen to the word and then do nothing about it. It was a strong comparison. And their religion is worthless. I cannot read that passage without thinking, if there's one passage that makes, makes me probably question how good I'm doing, you know, uh, it's going to be this one. And so, of course, we like the, the verse 27 here a lot better, but the religion that our God, uh, our father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows, which were the bottom of society in terms of rights and ability to do things. Uh, and they were the, you know, um, the least, so to speak. Right. Even more so than slaves in this you know, particular time period. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, you get the idea there in James. It a pretty important idea that we ought to keep a tight rein on our tongue. In fact, it relates back to how he sees uh, our religi- religiosity, which is pretty crazy. So we don't exploit that right to freedom of speech. We allow other voices to be in, uh, heard. So we can listen first, speak second, and understand throughout, which is really so much of the problem with speaking first is that we're speaking to a straw man, to something that doesn't even exist. It might exist in our mind, but it isn't existent in terms of what the other person is actually trying to say. We haven't grasped what they're trying to say fully yet because we've really not understood it. So I wanted to ask a couple questions real quick to you before I move on to the second last point. And that's what are some of the excuses we use? And I want to say good excuses, not mean good, meaning they're good reasons, but just excuses that we think are good for not listening to people. I'll get to good reasons in a second. Reasons where you know that you know maybe this is the right you know, time period or time moment to not listen to someone. What are e- uh, excuses we use for not listening? Anybody and everybody, you know, apply this one quickly.
2: You said excuses for not listening. Uh huh. I feel like maybe this isn't an excuse, but a lot of times I don't listen because I'm
0: thinking about what I want to say. You know what I mean? Like it's not like justifying it, but i will just like so focused on what I'm going to say next that I'm not listening to what the other person is saying. Yeah, and that's um, kind of, we use the good.
2: We use the excuse they're not a Christian, right? They're not a Christian. They don't have the same worldview. They don't have the same guide posts to life. Therefore, what they have to say isn't as important. It shouldn't be important to me.
0: Um. Though. The excuse is, I, I know I'm right, so why would I listen to anything else? Yeah, the uh, they aren't accurate in what they're saying is one of my big ones. I need to just inform them of the accuracy. It's kind of like people who correct your, uh, your, your speech, you know, correct you when you're wrong on stuff. Uh, Ronnie made the mistake years ago of telling me that he had this little game with his brother Jack and uh, that... Uh, you know, what they would do is if one of them corrected the other, the other would just stop and say, you're my hero. You are my hero. Just sort of sarcastically. Now I've done that to Ronnie multiple times because I don't speak correctly and he loves to to call me out. So I get to tell him you're my hero all the time now, which is pretty great. But that's a good one. If you have anything else, excuses for not listening, just straight up. You, they
1: don't share your opinion. Like, (laughs) That's enough. Like, oh, they're, they're, they, they're crazy.
0: So what about good reasons for not listening? Actually good reasons. Like, let me just give you one that I think is probably obvious to all of us is someone is just being hateful and harmful. Right. And and we can determine that it's not just a, an accidental hateful and harmful. It's an obvious hateful and harmful. What else? Good reasons for not listening.
2: Broken breast. Say it again. Broken trust, like after my trust is broken, I'm less likely to listen to you. Okay,
0: yeah, if someone's super, you know, false in actually what they're saying, sometimes it's very hard, and sometimes we probably might not listen to what they're saying. (laughs) They're trying to work their way out of a, you know, a a series of actions that obviously show that to be not genuine. Anything else?
2: I have another Um, bad one uh, I was thinking about, that. I feel like I've heard a lot in our community in the past few years about I have boundaries, so I don't want to, like, listen to other people because of my boundaries. Can
0: you explain that one a little bit better?
2: Like, it's going to hurt me. It's going to take a lot out of me. I think there's, like, that boundaries book that people are reading a lot, and I think people just take it to the extreme a lot. Well, that can be a good one or not a good one. I think sometimes if Yeah, uh, Brad, I, she was I, using that as a... She's, she was going back to the first question you asked oh, when she answered that one,
0: gotcha. I think. But it could go either way, I think, because sometimes, you know, you... you yeah. If someone's telling you something that uh, you're not the right person to be, you know, uh, there to be informing you of it, and they're just more telling you because it lets them off the hook or makes them feel cathartic or, uh, or you know, doesn't really challenge um, them to go and deal with it, I think that can be an important one. Maybe one more. Uh, Brittany, you had one? Yeah, Brittany, Brittany here. Um, <laughs> I was going to say gossip or trying to talk bad about somebody else. Sure. Awesome. Great. Let's move on then. So this one's not quite a bill of rights one, um, but it's definitely uh, in our enshrined in our declaration. And honestly, there was a little bit of an argument between Locke and Jefferson and Jefferson sort of won out in the words of protecting uh, for, uh, you know, life. um, life. Excuse me, I can't even now say it. Uh, Property versus happiness, the pursuit of life um, and um, the pursuit of property and pursuit of happiness. So when we don't exploit our right to be happy, right? And this is a big one. We don't grasp or exploit our right to be happy. We allow life to happen rather than trying to control it. And when we release sort of control, we can actually turn to God for help. So I think many of us believe uh, this, which should be basically a bill of right, but it's too... Um, they, I think, they sort of fit in there that we ought to be happy, right? And uh, and this one's tough because again, we live in a society where people seem to be able to have a lot of happiness, whether that's material or not. Uh, and if we just work hard enough, we'll be happy. But the scripture really doesn't portray uh, happiness as being a right that we ought to consider. Let me turn to Ecclesiastes seven. Uh, A book that most people tend not to think is related to
2: happiness.
0: (laughs) But it's got some really good wisdom here. I'm going to read most of chapter 7 here. Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot so is the laughter of fools, this too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. The advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Right? So we ought not grasp uh, or exploit uh, this right that we all feel in our society to be happy. The pursuit of happiness is definitely a worldly idea. Uh, It's not at all really a scriptural run. And it comes back to the idea that humanists believe that we can, for the most part, define our future. Uh, We can decide ultimately what happens to us. And what happens in that, uh, although it empowers people to make decisions and empowers s- civilizations to make sure that people have a- a- a paths towards you know, living the best life, is it fails to recognize that we are still very much confined by the seasons of life and then just the things that happen in life. And it, it ill prepares us to handle many of the things that just sort of happen in life. Okay, whether it be death, which is of the obvious one there, Um, but just pain and suffering and things that the scripture really embraces as opportunities for God to work. And this doesn't mean we're the sour desert fathers that are all sad all the time. And somehow we prioritize sad. It's not at all, not even a little bit. It's not what the author there is saying, but if we live life believing that we have the right to be happy all the time we will only create more unhappiness for ourselves and fail to take opportunity for those time periods. Uh, when happiness seems uh, you know, outside of our grasp, all right? So let's talk about this one in the same context, although it's a little bit more difficult. What excuses do we make for not allowing life to just sort of happen to us? Excuses, maybe a better way of looking at this is excuses for pursuing happiness. I know one of the ones for me that, was, that kind of just comes up pretty obvious is that it's just not fair. I look at other people around me and I think that's not fair. Uh, and what is fair is me sort of somehow leveling the playing field. That's not fair. So I'm going to um, do something that's in within my control level the playing field. Rather than recognizing that life is in no ways fair. Excuses we make for not allowing life to happen?
2: I think a really big one for me is the excuse of... I've given
0: so much, I deserve to get something in return for all of the good that I've done, so. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, An excuse I feel like I had a lot is like, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy or like God wants good things for us. And so like, I should pursue what's good for me. And he does want
0: good things for us, but good things often come from the pain in our life. And that would be another one for me is it's just, it hurts. The excuse for not allowing this to happen. Well, it hurts, so it's like it it shouldn't hurt. Nothing, uh, you know, should hurt. Anything else on that one?
2: I kind of have yeah. a thought, and I want to.
0: Oh. Please, yeah, thoughts.
2: Oh, so I don't know if this is applicable, and just connect. You know, say something rude to me if it isn't. I'm sure you will. So, uh, the idea of like, I think I see a lot in Christians this this idea of almost forcing ourselves to present. As being happy, like this top, this like fake positivity of like, it's not even just, it's our right to be happy, but like, we have, we have to, we have to be joyful. We have to be positive. Everything's fine. You know, kind of covering up the sadness and the pain that we do actually feel with this, like, we just, we're happy. We're fine. We're all joyful. We have the joy of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. Like, does that fit into what you're talking about it at all? Or difficult. is that kind of a different?
0: No, it's a difficult one, because I think if you go back to the Psalms, this is ultimately what's so inspiring about the Psalms, is David is really raw, and he is really upset at times. And yet, what's kind of pervades his writing is a sense of hope in God, whether or not he feels it at the moment. But he doesn't communicate that hope in like, all uh, oh, things are going to be okay. It's, you know, no big deal. It's a... Uh, a, a sort of an urgent forcing myself to recognize who God is and even sometimes speaking that when I don't believe it and so no I think there is a, a slippery slope there because sometimes people go to the other end and it's like well if I'm mad or upset being authentic and honest is just making sure that I express that completely and fully and it's like no no one needs that <laughs> like not always uh especially if that's a tendency I think we have
3: I think I'm not for sure you know, I'm trying to think what angle you're really coming from here, but me I'm just missing out on it, but um I think for me, if I'm not happy, i I believe I'm a sinner that I don't have enough faith in God, therefore I should always be whistling Dixie and be happy all the time. and if I'm not, wow, you lousy bum, you don't have faith in God uh, you you really are a sinner you you you're really missing the mark and I think, that's what happens to me if I don't feel like I'm happy all the time. Yeah, that's an excellent point.
2: Yeah, I let just I want to say Les, I think that's that's exactly what I was just thinking too. So you said you didn't know if you were if you're off the mark, then I am too, but we're in the same boat, because that's what I was thinking as well. Someone had something that they wanted to share a thought, and I think we cut you off. <laughs> yeah uh, i was
0: just gonna say that like i think sometimes whenever it comes to just like letting life take its place uh for me anyway it's like a lot of times it's difficult because it it's the idea of losing control or, like not being in control and sometimes i just really like i don't like not being in control and so like the idea for just life to happen would mean i i would be someone who's just like all right yep life just happened i'm not taking control anymore and that's just sometimes just really difficult for me yeah so what about good reasons for not allowing life to happen?
2: <laughs> not being disengaged. Say it again. Not being disengaged or like apathetic.
0: Okay. Certainly one with, with, that's kind of obvious is that we don't allow evil to flourish. You know, I mean, that's part of what we're talking about in disengage. When abuse happens and things happen, uh, we don't let that happen. We call it out and we're very careful. And one of the biggest points, I think, in all of this stuff is it's often the difference between we have a vested interest in this or it's really ultimately about someone else. Because when it's about someone else, so like, you know, not letting someone speak up that's not allowing other voices to be heard, we don't have a vested interest in it. Um, You know, the scripture calls us to protect others before we protect our own self. And I think that's the hard part about what you know, these things uh, are ultimately talking about because we tend to think of the Bill of Rights as this is my rights. But the scripture reverses that and says, right, but how are you protecting others' rights um, and putting them above yourselves? And that's what gets challenging. So other good reasons for not allowing life to happen, not allowing life to just happen, how we're talking about it, or, or good excuses uh, for trying to pursue happiness. This is a tough one know the, the phrasing of this is might not, not be perfect. I'll just give you another one uh, that, that's from mine, just in case it helps you know me think. Uh, we're alone and simply can't handle it. You know, some people, there's things that come their way that they simply can't handle, whether that's a mental illness or a life situation or whatever, and they're alone trying to handle it. And this in no way are we trying to say that allow life to happen to you, that you are supposed to do this stuff on your own or try to overcome something that is not within your ability to overcome. And I think that's a really important aspect of, of this, is, uh, is kind of thinking about sometimes when we are embracing unhappiness, <laughs> for the sake of unhappiness, because we don't believe that happiness is possible, that's not how we ought to be thinking or, or, or sort of living. It's sort of the opposite end of this, believing that we have the right to be happy.
1: Maybe it's pretty similar to that, but sometimes I want to tell, you know, friends or loved ones, like, I want you to, like, fight to be, to not be, like, bullied around in your mind by all these, like, uh, thoughts that are hampering you and stuff like that. Like, don't just kind of sit back and let this wave swallow you, like, fight back. Um, I guess I mostly am thinking of that in terms of, like, people who are feeling a lot of shame or, you know, some afflicted emotion like that.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the hardest part about this one in particular is, you know, probably this isn't the best worded uh, way of saying this, allowing life to happen. I um, don't mean that at all in a sense that you just sort of take everything that comes your way. I think the bigger idea here is that life does happen. And if we're constantly surprised uh, and unexpected or and things are uh, unexpected, uh, we have a problem with just allowing the sort of ebb and flow. Things are being sad and losing jobs and Friendships, you know, sort of being, you know, separated, having difficult, you know, thoughts in our head. All of these things are simply possibilities for God to work, and not opportunities for us to try to control the state we're in um, by by changing quick fixes, things like that. And when our first response is "I should be happy," we generally want a quick fix for something uh, rather than dealing with it uh, in a way that uh, that really uh, leans into God. This is something you have to do inside of me um, rather than something I can just control on my own. The happiness is the quick fix mentality that many of us have sort of learned. If I can't fix it in a day or a week or a month, um, something's super wrong with me, Uh, rather than allowing the fact that, you know, that's just not how things work in life.
3: I don't know, you know, I guess what I think about in this pandemic, there's so many people just depressed, Separated, lonely, um, and especially during this time of season, which is even worse. And you add a pandemic on top of this. But I remember. I guess one thing that helps me is that Paul, while he was in prison, he you know he he gave a key a secret here about all of this stuff. He says, you know, what I think the secret is is that you need to think about what's noble or what's honorable. Think about you know, things that basically God has given you and done in your life for you. Think about such things, he says, in this in time, if you really do that during this time, um, it will make you at peace. I, I don't really, I don't know I don't know if I see in the Bible anywhere it talks about being happy or happy as a goal or happy as a standard or a judgment. I see the Bible where Jesus talks about it's about peace, being at peace with yourself, being at peace with what's, ha- what's happening with you. Um, and so right now, a lot of people in this pandemic is not in peace. They don't have any peace at all, not, no peace of mind at all. They're depressed and bothered. And so am I right about, should we even worry about being happy? Is it more important for us to really be at peace with God and peace with ourselves? And That is what really Paul talked about more than anything else.
0: Yeah, and that passage, I think it's a great one. I mean, it's really apt because he says, you know, I found contentment in all these situations, well fed, hungry, um, beaten, um, safe and secure. And, and, you know, the secret of his contentment was that God could do uh, in any of those situations, uh, bring good out of them. And I definitely that's a great closing thought is that God brings good out of these these situations. But oftentimes the good that He brings out isn't just about developing something within us. It's also about really ministering and blessing to some you know uh, blessing someone else. And I think that's what's really important about um, just this topic in general is that when we focus on our rights, we often do this you know kind of natural thing, which is to to sort of an unfair assessment of other people's rights. What does it look like as Christians when we uh, truly care more about other people's rights than we care about our own? And I'm not just talking about in some global organizational way that, yeah, I participate in some organization that helps people with less rights than me. I'm talking about the person sitting across from me who I do not like very much. What does that look like to consider their rights over mine? That's the hard stuff. Um, That's the challenging stuff. Um, I see this a lot just to conclude in this language about bearing arms. <laughs> I mean, I get protection for you from, for a gun and for protection of others, but being willing to shoot someone because they stole your property or trespassed or threaten you. I mean, come on, that's, that's truly thuggish <laughs> and not at all. Uh, uh, what's befitting of who Jesus is. So that's my only gun statement in Texas. I'm not going to make too many more. Um, I have my own demons, so. Um, yeah, any questions or sort of final thoughts just on this topic? I mean, again, the the goal more than anything is to get you thinking about what are some of those rights that I have, uh, that I really do, um, sort of, you know, expect them to be mine and there I live based on them rather than living, uh, based on a much more expansive view of, of saying yes to God. Uh, and really treating people as if their rights are are more important than mine. So, any final questions or thoughts before we break? Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh. oh. Mm-hmm. Jinx. Oh, jinx. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I was just wondering because I I just I'd never really heard of that thought, Brad, that you had of just like. It's not so much as just saying no to culture, but having a spirit of yes towards God. And in my head, I feel like in some instances that might be the same thing. So it is sometimes the same thing, absolutely. Okay. The okay. question is: are you wholesale uh, accepting one and rejecting the other, or which one takes priority? I. Uh, see. So I okay. think you're, yeah. And the point, the question is going back to it, is just the idea that uh, in as Christians we say yes to God, not just no to you know culture or yes to cultural christianity the point is saying yes to god and when they come into tension uh-huh. like the tension of family and faith and things like that one has to win out
2: i see so like the
0: outcome of might be the same like it like saying no to culture having a, a spirit of yes towards god um like it might look the same on the outside but it's kind of where your heart's at yeah like what like what was your motivation Doing, okay. Oh okay, that
1: makes okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say a uh something with the worship activity and the sermon and everything, what has been coming to my mind is when Jesus said like if a I don't remember it verbatim, but he said something like if a grain of wheat doesn't go into the ground and die, then it's just that's the end for it, but if it does go into the ground and die, then it, you know, produces a hundredfold fruit. Um so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, I, uh, I have a question, um, with, so like with suffering, like I've been reading a lot of like Romans and first Thessalonians and stuff like that, where Paul specifically talks about suffering is like a pre, like it's going to happen to Christians. Like it's going to happen to people who follow Jesus. That's like, he just kind of lays it out there. Bottom line it's going to happen. Um, so just, and like hearing this sermon, it's like suffering, is almost necessary so it's like I guess my question is what is um the balance like just kind of playing devil's advocate like you said uh something about some like ancient church basically that like aimed for sadness um but like where is the cutoff like where yeah, do we know the beat't the much yeah
0: and a lot of it goes back to the idea that when you look at what the cross is and remember that the theme of the liturgy today was you know the cross changes everything and part of the reason it changes everything uh, or, you know, or when Jesus appears he changes everything cross changes everything that's the song if you haven't listened to is that he suffered for the sake of other people. The Desert Fathers misunderstood suffering because in their suffering, they were trying to grow closer to Christ, which the scripture does talk about. Uh, but they were doing it on their own behalf for the sake of communion with God. And there's nothing in scripture. In fact, there's plenty of things that talk about beating the body and um, you know being unhealthy. But they were suffering for the sake of other people. I think when we look at the suffering in our lives that we've experienced, if most of the suffering that we've experienced isn't really for the sake of others, we can't really say that we're approximating the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. And that's not a bad thing because that allows us to understand how we've thought about suffering in the past and to try to approximate, uh, you know, or try to make it as a goal in our lives to do that. And again, it, I don't think it so much has to come from like an intentional, I'm going to go out and suffer for others a lot, <laughs> These are the things that just come in our life from being close to people, from sticking our necks out for people, for um, listening and doing the things that we're talking about. That's just natural stuff. It's how we respond in those moments, not that we're going out and intentionally trying to suffer. Jesus didn't head places so that people would stone him or uh, be mad at him. He didn't cause conflict like that.
3: Um, I think also the longer you live, you won't have to worry about suffering. You will suffer if you're you here on this earth long enough, I mean, there will be a time, I, I remember going to church and I would have to cross a picket line and people were threatening our lives just for going to church. Okay, I, I'm going, we've gone through that, me and Judy. And there might be a time that's going to come up again in the future um, where going to church might be so antisocial that you're going to have to cross a picket line. You're going to have to go with it people threatening your lives in 20 years, when you guys still here? I won't be probably, but you guys still here, then you to be experiencing those kind of troubles. But it will come. You won't have to worry about it. It's just the time when these things do come that you be ready to um, rejoice in them and use it for the Lord's purpose.
2: I have a question, Brad. It kind of is going off what Justin asked, but you know. how I'm understanding what you're, what you're talking about is like, we as Christians, we don't live down to a set of laws. We live up to this calling of the gospel. And part of that means that we don't grasp onto or hold onto our rights as like Americans, let's just say citizens of America, we have these rights, but we don't exploit those or hold onto those. But there are so many other people, so many Americans that do not, live according to the gospel they've not chosen to they do very much live according to what their bill of rights what their rights are so do we as christians still you know you keep talking about like we were also to protect the rights of others before we protect our own rights so like are we is there a balance between like wanting to apply this sacrifice of your own rights for the well-being of others and wanting other people to do that too or like we are protecting and defending non-believers rights even though they haven't i don't even know if this is making any sense my question is not really making much sense but like we're adhering to this but other people haven't so are we still to like advocate for protecting other people's rights even though we feel like we know that's not really the highest rights you can have. I think there's two
0: questions, at least that makes sense to me. One is how we treat believers and unbelievers and scripture is pretty firm on that. You always treat believers, uh, I think, in a way that uh, expects a higher standard. If They want to call in the name of Christ and uh, call themselves followers of Christ. We treat them to a higher standard. We expect more from them. We call sin out more quickly um Unfortunately, that's the opposite of how a lot of Christians will work, uh, and they do sort of the opposite um, of that. And the second question, I- I- at least in my mind, is you know, do, are, are we like throwing out rights, baby in the bathwater? Like we do not, we not make sure that those rights are enforced for others. As the Bill of Rights is very much a God-given thing, I think in America, uh, the Bill of Rights is an excellent document, it's very important. It's. Uh, it's very advanced in terms of where other societies have been. Same for our constitution. I'm not trying to be a nationalist or heavy patriot here, but I am saying that these things that have come out of our democracy are God-given and they're good things. And we ought to make sure that those things are enforced for others. Now, the other end of this is Christians going and thinking, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't have to obey any laws. No, I, <laughs> or, or I don't, you know, I'm living to some other better standard out there. Now the baseline is the baseline. Remember, Uh, of what Jesus told the apostles, they ought to be better than the religious leaders of their day. That was saying something. These were religious leaders. If they really wanted to, uh, you know, care about the people around them and show them the example of Christ, they would be better than them. I mean, they would be following the law more than and more correctly than the religious leaders of the day. And so that's just a baseline, I think. I'm not sure they answer the question completely, but we've gone over time. So if you have more questions or thoughts? Certainly, send them my way, or uh, you know, maybe the more difficult ones send Leslie's way, and uh, um, then I think we'll be uh, we'll be good. I'm going to end with a prayer. Lord God, you are God of the humble, and as the prayer we prayed earlier, um, bring us down a level and bless um, those of us who need to be brought up from those valleys. Bring us up, and those of us, self included. Brought down from the mountains, bring us down so that we can make a level path for your coming. Help us to be wise about how we live, to accept the hurt and the pain and the suffering, particularly for the sake of others that comes our way, um, but fully trusting that you will make good out of those things and that we have nothing to fear in them. We love you, Lord. Amen.